The Gospel of John was written, was written to persuade Jewish people to believe in Jesus so that they would see him as their Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. John writes or declares that Jesus was God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made. In him was life. He was the life giver. He was the only begotten or the one-of-a-kind Son of God, unique. And because the Heavenly Father loved his creation so much, he gave his unique Son to fulfill the prophecies of old that declared Whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. They would be the redeemed of the Lord. Listen to what John wrote in chapter 20 of his epistle, of his book. Now, Jesus did many signs in presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name, in His name. I was studying this, and that phrase, that little ending there, in His name, kept jumping out at me. And I asked myself, what is His name? What is the name that He's talking about? Is it Jesus? I don't think so. Jesus was a very common name then. Yeshua was what they might say. Why not just say life in Jesus instead of life in his name? Just life in Jesus. There's a similar verse in Acts. Peter's explaining about the, gen- about the Gentiles hearing the good news. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. And again, Paul writing to the Corinthians, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. You may think I'm making a big deal out of nothing here. I, I don't think so. To the Jewish people and to people around the world, your name is very important. It's, it's who you are. It identifies you with a family, with a country. Your name may be a good name. It may have, you may have good relatives in your history, or perhaps not. So the Jews were very concerned about their names. You remember that in Luke, there's a long section there where Luke says all the names of the Lord Jesus, his heritage. He lists them all out. He wanted everybody to know that he came from, that Jesus came from Abraham, so forth and so on, all the way up to Jesus. It was important for for his readers to know who he was. Matthew, you remember Matthew starts out the same way, a long list. 
about the names associated with Jesus, his family, his heritage. So the name is very important. Having this mind among yourselves in Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name that is above every name, so that at this name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? Should bow under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The New Testament writers, Paul, John, Luke, Mark, so forth and so on, had come to believe that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah, the Savior, the King above all kings, and the Lord. Sorry for my noisy bottle. So we look at the Old Testament Scripture with the eyes of a first century Jew. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, was God, the God a name that they were afraid to have on their lips for fear of taking the Lord's name in vain. They would not speak the name of the Lord. Jehovah, Yahweh. They wouldn't even write his name. So they referred to him as Lord. Jews did not pronounce, nor did they read aloud the name of Yahweh or Jehovah. Instead, they replaced it with a different term or substitution, Adonai, or which means my master, or Hashem, the name. I think today we're too familiar with the Lord and with his name. We're too casual with it. It's kind of like you've never met the president and you go up to him and pat him on the shoulder and say, hey, bud, how's it going? You just, you just would not do that. There's a, there's a sense of honor for the presidency. But that will change one day. The skies will be ripped open. And on that day, all earth, everyone on earth, all at one time, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will see the great Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, appear. What a wonderful day that will be. And fear will fill the earth. And those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, us, will be comforted and not frightened, but they will bow before their God. But those who don't know the Lord will scramble and run in fear to the closest hiding place. And on that day, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's why I think it's important to, the, to, to know the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is Lord. That's his name. Lord. It's a heavenly name. In Romans, we see, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Luke says also, right at the very beginning of Jesus' life, for today, in the city of David, there has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Long ago, there was a fellow 
who was a disciple of John, this very John that wrote these words, his name was Polycarp. Odd to our tongue, to our mouth, Polycarp, but that was his name. He was a wonderful man. He was a godly man. He was the bishop of Smyrna, and everyone looked to him for guidance. This is right at the turn of the first century. Caesar, or Kaiser, had sent out an edict that everyone must confess Kaiser est curios. Caesar is Lord. You can imagine the effect that that had on the church. So the prefect, the Roman prefect in Smyrna, liked Polycarp. So he went to him and he says, look, this is going to go bad for the Christians. If you'll confess Kaiser est curios, then all your people will respond and follow you. And Polycarp, he said, I, I just can't do that. So this went on back and forth with the prefect for several months. Finally, a trial was set. Everyone gathered, people outside, people inside. Uh, the most noble Romans were there. And they asked Polycarp one last time, will you confess Caesar as Lord? Will you do it now? And Polycarp stood up in the midst of everyone. There was a hush over the crowd. And he said, lo, these 83 years, I have served my Lord. The prefect thinks he's going to go ahead and confess Kaiser, Caesar. Lo, these 83 years I have served my Lord. How can I refuse him now? Jesus est curios. Jesus is Lord. The name carries weight to it. It means something. I'm not even sure what all it means, but I'm just testifying to you. There's something wonderful there, something holy in that name. We need to recognize it. Give the Lord Jesus his, his due. Honor him. So now we can start the sermon. I want to give you a quick history lesson to help you understand why the Jewish leaders and Jesus behaved like they did. Why they behaved like they did. We'll start about 350 years before Jesus was born. Alexander the Great had a plan to conquer the world. He pretty much did it. Where the Jewish people, the Israelites, lived, he conquered that area as well. There's already been a lot of turmoil within the Israelite camp. So Alexander the Great's army conquers. They're overthrown, the Israelites are. Next comes in, well, Alexander the Great died at a very young age. 
And one of his generals took over part of his kingdom. Ptolemy is his name. He had a big battle with the Jews in that area, overcame them. They were overthrown. They lived for 90 or 100 years or so under his rule, his boot on their neck. They weren't free. They wanted their own kingdom. Then the Syrians came, the Seleucid Empire. The Syrians came. They threw out Ptolemy, conquered the Israelites again. They were terrible to them. Finally, a family called the Maccabees fought against the Seleucids, overthrew them. And there was a king again over Israel. Then, after about another hundred years, we're coming right down to the time that Jesus is almost born. After a bloody war, a new power came in, the Romans. And the Romans were vicious, no mercy. When they took a town over, they found all the leaders. They crucified them along the way into the town, just to remind you of who was boss, who was in control. The Jews hated it. There was some civil war in Rome at this time. Caesar Augustus, maybe you remember that name. Caesar Augustus became the first emperor of Rome, and it was during his reign that Jesus was born. He appointed a friend of his, Herod the Great. He was appointed king of the Jews in 37 BC, just a few years before Jesus was born. He was very popular with Rome because he was ruthless, and he did not allow uprisings. And he collected the taxes really well. You'll remember when the Magi came looking for the new king of the Jews, Herod told them to be sure, this is the Magi, Herod talking to the Magi, says, I want to know where this king is because I want to pay tribute to him as well. Well, the Magi sniffed out a rat They paid homage, gave gifts, and went through the back door. And Herod the Great was infuriated. And we read in Scripture that he sent out an edict. Every male child, two years and younger, killed. Can you imagine that? I mean, I've read that so many times, but if you think about it, how horrific that is. How cruel to take your baby and kill him and throw him in the trash heap. The Jews hated the Romans, hated them because they were so brutal. Herod finally died 
just a few years after Jesus was born, his son, Herod Antipas, you might see that in scripture, Herod Antipas ruled Galilee where Jesus lived. And so you'll better understand all the players. There were some changes in Rome, and a man named Pontius Pilate was appointed prefect of the large area that included Galilee. Herod Antipas reported to Pilate, Pilate reported to Caesar, Antipas didn't want to live in his father's house or palace in Jerusalem, so he built a new palace in a city north of Jerusalem. This is important because it puts a Jewish leader in control of Jerusalem. Antipas appointed Caiaphas as his high priest to rule Jerusalem and the region. Caiaphas was a very good politician, and he was the longest-serving high priest during that time. It fell to Caiaphas to keep the peace in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. That wasn't easy. The Jews hated the Romans. They still remembered the babies that were killed. It hadn't been that long ago. So there would be uprisings on a regular basis. The Jewish people were looking. They were begging for a Messiah, a deliverer from Roman oppression. So if a man started a gathering started to have a gathering, Caiaphas would report it to Antipas. Caiaphas would take care of the smaller situations himself, a small little uprising, a dozen, two dozen people, with beatings or imprisonment. If it was too great an uprising for Antipas to handle, he would call on his buddy Pilate. They would send soldiers, they would kill all the followers, they would crucify the leaders. I'm explaining this to you to help you understand the hatred the Jews had for the Romans, the mistrust they had for the Jewish leaders, and the great longing they had for a deliverer, a Messiah. These are the political conditions that Jesus was born into, lived through, and ministered through. And we don't talk about it much in the church, but... What about Jesus' personal life? What about his family? And I believe Jesus was, I believe Joseph, sorry, uh, seeming to be Jesus' father, he was a skilled craftsman, a carpenter, and he came from the tribe of Benjamin, so that name is very important, whose lineage came through King David. He would have been very well known in his community, probably a leader, I believe, I'm sure he must have worked on Herod's, Herod the Great's palace, on the temple, on Pilate's palace, and had taken Jesus and his brothers to work with him since they, when they turned 13. At 13, they became a man, and they were expected to do man's work. If so, Jesus would have been familiar with the Romans and the Jewish leaders. Jesus would have been well-educated and familiar with the scrolls that had the law, the prophets, history, poetry. You remember when he went to Jerusalem with Joseph and Mary, he was left behind and they found him after three days. He was at the temple and he was talking and asking questions with the priests and with the teachers. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding. He was 13 years old or 12 years old. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And he asked his parents, why were they surprised that he was there? Why would you be surprised? 
And he said, I was just going about my father's business. And Luke ends this account by reporting that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So now back to Jesus as he started his ministry. At the direction of the Father and with the support of the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist had, been, uh, had uh, seen the Holy Spirit descend from heaven and the Spirit remained with him. This is what John is talking about earlier when he says, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He whom you see the Spirit descend and remain on, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus begins to select his disciples. They're reporting, the disciples are reporting that they had found the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus tells them that they have See that they will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And of course, he was referring to himself. So Jesus has followers. This is troublesome to Caiaphas. He speaks and teaches like someone with authority. He knows what he's talking about. People want to be near him. They want to hear him. They're beginning to call him a Messiah. We'll see that he discourages the use of that title, Messiah, and prefers to call himself Son of Man. He finds himself at a wedding with his family, and he performs his first miracle. He turns the water into wine. <clears throat> the servants and the disciples know what he has done, and his disciples, Scripture says, believed him. More people began to seek him out, and, they did more si- and he did more signs, but John says, I don't need to tell you all that. There's only six or seven signs that John speaks about. There was a lot more. John then tells us a very interesting account with Nicodemus and Jesus, when Jesus ends up scolding Nicodemus, saying, I've told you earthly things, and you don't believe. How can you possibly understand heavenly things if I tell them to you? Then Jesus proceeds to tell him a very heavenly thing. <laughs> He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a, this is a monumental statement that Jesus has declared right there. He's telling whoever is near that he is God, that he's going to be crucified, and whoever believes in him will be with him forever. I think that term, son of man, is a very interesting one. In the New Testament, it's used 86 or 87 times. 83 of those times It's Jesus referring to himself. It's what he called himself, the Son of Man. And I know there's Son of Man, Son of God. One refers to his deity, the other to his manhood. But in this particular case, when Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man, he's talking about something entirely different than being human. Let me tell you about it. So Jesus has been raised from the dead. 
He's walking the earth. He's seen hundreds of people after he's been raised from the dead. Hundreds of people. He's gathered a group with him, and he's giving them instructions. And as he's standing there, suddenly a cloud begins to form around him. And he begins to get bright and brighter and bright. And it, and it shows through his clothes. And then his clothes begin to turn bright. And the cloud gets bigger and bigger. And the people, I imagine, are very concerned, very nervous. What is he up to? And as they watch him, <clears throat> he begins to rise. And he goes. And the cloud gets bigger and brighter. It's like when the astronauts went up to the space station. You know, remember back in the 80s, 70s, we would watch the, uh, the, the rocket ship go up. And, and finally, after it was up so far, all you could see was a, a trail of fumes and that bright light. And the camera would try to follow it, and it would go up and up. Where did Jesus go? He had to go someplace, right? I know. I know where he went. And I'm going to tell you. In Daniel, this was hundreds of years before this, this event happened. <clears throat> Daniel, the, God has given Daniel some visions, some dreams. He's opened up the doors of heaven to him and, and, and told Daniel, take a look at what you see. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. This happened. His clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were a burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So we have a courtroom scene the Ancient of Days is the judge, and there is this throng of heavenly hosts, millions, all gathered in this courtroom. Uh, you can imagine a huge vestige, huge, and they're all packed in there, and they're wondering, why have we been called? Suddenly. The great doors open, and there's a bright light. Let me read to you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. This is Jesus coming to the courtroom. This is what Daniel's seen. And I imagine that as he walks, there's a hush that falls over every heavenly host. 
You could hear a pin drop if there were pins there. And as they walk, the heavenly hosts part to let him through, and they bow. They bow to the Lord Jesus. And he walks up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And of course, we know that he was found innocent of all the crimes that were associated with him. And that's our Lord. That's Son of Man. When you read Son of Man in the New Testament, for the most part, it's talking about a heavenly being. And Jesus, when he says it, is saying, I'm God. That's what he's saying. I'm God. (laughs) Pardon me. So now we're ready to read John John chapter 5, 1 through 18. I'm going to go fast. Let me get it on. I'm trying this without my Bible. So there's no telling what will happen. John 5, 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus was up to, went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep's gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades, and, these, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been in, there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man? Who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus. This is the Jewish leaders. He told them that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them when they confronted him. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I'm working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I'm running a little behind, so I'm going to skip just a little bit here. So Jesus has, has been in Jerusalem. Let's talk about this for a little bit. He's there for a feast, normally in Jerusalem, there's about 55,000 people that live there. When there's a feast or a festival, there can be as many as 180,000 people there. So, I mean, it's packed tight. It's worse than going to the old Astrodome in a, full, in a sellout crowd. 
<laughs> I remember. Oh, this is. I remember taking Patrick. He was just a little guy, and where you know how you walk like this when the crowd is heavy there at the at the stadium. And I looked down, and I had his hand. I looked down, and his was right at the right height of everybody's rear end. <laughs> so I thought, what a miserable sight that this poor boy <laughs> is living through. So I had mercy, and I picked him up and carried him. That has nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> thoughts come in, thoughts go out. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Oh, where was I? Jesus continued in Jerusalem, and John reports a strange event upon, uh, upon Jesus' arrival. So Jesus has come up to Jerusalem. He sees the crowds. He knows they're going to be there. He makes his way to the sheep gate, a very popular area, where the sheep were brought in to be sacrificed at the temple. There were two large pools. One was higher, the other lower. The water flowed one to the other. People would gather there and swim and relax in the shade of the roof colonnades. The colonnades, just the, the huge columns, and there would be a, a roof over it. It was open air. It was beautiful. Herod made it. It, it was just gorgeous and huge. It was a huge pool. Both, both pools were. The, the, the uh, pools were fed by a large waterway called Solomon's Pool. Now, in Scripture, verse 4, in, in this Bible that I'm using, verse 4 is omitted, and that's because older writings of John did not include the part about an angel stirring the water, so I didn't read that to you. In the, King, in the old King James, it says that an angel came and stirred the water, and after the water was stirred, the first person in there was the one that would be healed. Whether it's an angel or not, apparently, the truth is, the water was stirred up, people would rush in, the first one in would be healed. I say that happened. I don't know why the Lord would do that, just His mercy and grace is the only reason. There was a great number of blind and lame and paralyzed who came to the lower pool every day to be healed because they didn't know when the pool would be stirred. Now John explains that there was a man who had been an invalid for 38 years and he doesn't say how long he'd been coming to the pool. It's not important information. We're told Jesus saw him. This was a man who hadn't seen Jesus he knew nothing about him, but Jesus came to him. John says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, 38 years, he approached him, Jesus approached the man and asked him, do you want to be healed? This was a strange response that the guy says. He said, there's no one there to put me in the pool. Why didn't he just say, Yes, of course I want to be healed. But he didn't. We don't know why. So Jesus tells him when he gets this answer, Jesus looks at him and says, Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. This sounds so simple, doesn't it? And at once the man was healed. Yeah. Take up your bed and walk. But his withered legs must have begun to make new muscles 
Twisted bones must have straightened out. Hips and back muscles began to grow and strengthen. The feet and ankles made strong. He'd not walked in 38 years. He probably had forgotten how to walk, and his brain function would have been healed as well so that his balance would have been okay because he's carrying something, not just healed, but carrying something as well. You can imagine his joy of walking for the first time in 38 years. And his buddies and folks around him must have been amazed and asking him to explain what happened. How could he be healed? But Jesus, not wanting the notoriety, stepped back into the crowd. He could have stayed there all day, night and day, healing people, making a great name for himself, and no doubt causing a great number to believe he was the Messiah. To me, if you want to get the word out about yourself, that seems like a great way to do it, at least to me. And of course, it was so loving of him on that day. He healed anyone, but this day was not just any day. This day was the Sabbath. John now tells us that it was the Sabbath for sure. So the Jewish leaders had gathered, and one of them happened to notice that the the man was carrying his bed. It was against the law. One of the many laws that were so burdensome to the Jews that forbade doing any work on the Sabbath. That's why they ask him, why are you carrying your bed? The man defends himself. It's not my fault. The man who healed me told me to get up and carry my bed, and the leaders aren't satisfied but can't get much out of the man. Later, Jesus finds the man in the temple. So Jesus has been looking for the guy, and he finds him, and he says, see, you're well. And then he tells him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We won't go into whether sin causes illness or vice versa, but this is what happened. The man, find, the man finds the Jewish leaders and tells them it was Jesus who healed him. So they find Jesus, confront him about healing on the Sabbath. Jesus responds to them with a most profound answer. They've asked him, why, why are you doing this? Why did you tell him to take up the bed? Why did you heal him? Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I'm working. To the first century Jewish years, this is heresy in the first degree. Jesus has said to them, my father and I are equal. I am God. I'll try to explain. First of all, it doesn't seem to me that Jesus has broken any laws himself. It doesn't seem to be unlawful to heal someone on the Sabbath, although it might be construed as work. But the leaders don't want to give credit to Jesus for the healing, so they avoid that discussion. It doesn't seem to be unlawful to tell a man to take up his bed and walk but a person might want to be careful to not cause another person to sin. So the Jewish officials just tell Jesus, stop it. He he responds to their demand with a legal defense. The words we use to say Jesus answered are in fact what a Jewish lawyer would would have used to begin a legal argument for a, a proper defense. So Jesus offers his defense. Now Jesus agrees with Jewish opinion that according to Genesis, On the seventh day of creation, God rests from his creative work. But does he really stop working altogether? Who's managing the affairs of the universe? Who keeps the universe in running order while he rests? The consensus among the rabbis was that God must work on the Sabbath. Otherwise, providence itself would weakly go into a state of temporary inactivity. And of course, that cannot be. 
Jesus doesn't argue that he's broken any Sabbath laws by healing a man. Instead, his legal defense is the same as him saying, his legal defense is the same as him saying, my father is still working until now, and because he's my father and I'm his son, so am I, period. For this self-defense to be valid, the same factors that apply to God must apply to him. Either he's above the law or he operates within the law because the entire universe is his, which is true. Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation on also justify his. This is what the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, Caiaphas heard Jesus saying about himself. He was equal with God. He was God's son. And he was doing these things like miracles or, and the things that he was doing like miracles or or they might think they were tricks, they couldn't explain them away. And they couldn't intimidate him. And people were beginning to call him Messiah. He might lead a rebellion, they worried. So they had to put a stop to it. They had to put a stop to him. Remember, Caiaphas knew that his head was on the chopping block if anything went wrong. So why would Jesus deliberately poke a stick in the Jewish leader's eyes? I've asked myself that many times. Why did Jesus constantly poke at them and cause them to be infuriated? Uh, why not just meet with him and explain that he was he was and he desired to bring salvation. He was salvation and he desired to bring salvation to all peoples, tongues, and tribes. That's his desire. That's what he wanted to do to love his brother as himself. The things that John has written in John 5 tell part of the plan that is, they tell part of the plan that is the beginning of the end, the beginning of a new creation, the end of sin and death, a plan that would include us. We've been born into it. We've been born into it where there is a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming from heaven that's been adorned as a bride for her husband where the dwelling place of God once again is with man. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things will have passed away. That's such a statement. The former things passed away. My sins are former things. They're passed away. And the Lord Jesus will be seated on a throne. He'll make all things new. He will proclaim that it's been done and completed and that he is the Alpha <coughs> And the omega, the beginning and the end of all things, and all things belong to him. So, why did Jesus antagonize the Jewish leaders? Why didn't he just go to the Romans and tell them he was the Messiah, heal some people, turn some water into wine? I think the Romans may have embraced him as another god. Perhaps even built a temple for him. Could have. So why? Why did he continue to antagonize them? Because the plan from the beginning, the Father's plan from the beginning 
<clears throat> was for God the Father, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry. To send the Son as a sacrificial lamb for the atonement needed once and for all, for all sin, for all time. The Lamb, the Lord, Jesus, needed to die on a cross, be buried and raised on the third day to accomplish that the Father needed for the Jewish leaders to abandon Jesus. Hear that. The Father needed for the Jewish leaders to abandon Jesus and present him to the Romans for execution. The Father couldn't make anyone do it. It had to be done of their own free will. Otherwise, it would be tantamount to killing Jesus himself. And Jesus couldn't make anyone kill him, or it would be tantamount to suicide. So there's a godly plan that the Father has put in place, tells the Son what to do. The Son agrees to the plan and does the work the Father calls him to do. The Holy Spirit agrees with the plan empowers the son to accomplish what he is called to do. This causes me to marvel. This causes me to marvel. There's a tapestry being woven. And we're a part of it. It's a plan that God has put into place. How intricate and costly the plan was. So that man could by faith choose to love him and give praise to him. Because God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. But have everlasting life. With him. With the Lord. 